Welcome to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. I'm your host, Gabby Sanderson, and I'm here to talk with international film stars, upcoming talent, and industry game changers. Over the Future Perspective series, you will discover secret stories and inspiring perspectives on the future of cinema, culture, and society. So let's begin. This is Future Perspectives. Welcome to Future Perspectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast. I'm your host, Gabby, and I am beyond excited to be talking today to director, screenwriter, and producer Todd Haynes. Welcome. Thank you, Gabby. It's great to be here. I'm going to just jump straight in. The premise of fact and fiction in the musical projects that you have made, there's something you really embrace, whether that's the most recent one with the Velvet Underground documentary or going back to the Velvet Goldmine, Bob Dylan, I'm Not There. Do you feel a responsibility to portray the artist in the most true, authentic way, or is telling a good story more important? Yeah, I tend to shy away from the term authentic. I feel like it's a, it's an inescapable term, particularly it's something Americans talk a lot about, authenticity. Um, (laughs) And in fact, ways in which authenticity gets sort of constructed by certain artists, and Bob Dylan might be a great example of that, is a really interesting part of the whole cycle of how authenticity is held you know the the this the uh, stature that it's given mm. but what's so fascinating to me is the ways people like dylan and it's what inspired that particular film but it's also comparable to the glam very much so and much more aggressively so perhaps in the theatricality of the glam era yeah is the ways that he embodied a phase of life and a phase of creative influence, and a style, and a sound, and a look, mm. and then he destroyed it, and he would move on to something else, much to the dismay of the f- huge fan base and the following that he would have stirred yeah. up at different points, and famously so when he plugged in electric at Newport Festival or whatever. And so I love that whole idea of how these artists reinvent themselves. And therefore, the the whole medium of film, when you think about how Mm. to tell their stories, Mm. to me has to reflect those kinds of ideas about Mm. self-presentation, about the employment of, of artifice and camp and theatricality when it comes to uh, glam rock, for instance, mm-hmm. and the and the ways Dylan almost as just this protean creative mind and being yeah. had to survive the pressure of being Bob Dylan by yeah. summarily giving up all of these different phases of his life and moving on to the next. Yeah, and what I learned, I've recently returned from six years living in Nashville, and what I... Oh, yeah, great music town. <laughs> Absolutely, but yeah. just such a hard worker as well. Oh, yeah, you know? oh, so so much so, mm. yeah. You were handpicked by Laurie Anderson to helm the documentary The Velvet Underground. Did that play heavily on your conscience too, because... She holds him still so close to a heart, like I've seen that when in talks and in her work. Well, look, the the esteem, the love that is that surrounds Lou Reed and his memory and his music mm. is so profound for the band as well. You know, you're walking into a world of such 
um, intense, serious following and interest among fans and among musicologists and mm -hmm. critics. And Laurie's particular relationship with Lou is so personal and special and unique. It was like the gift that I think his whole life was awaiting in terms of a love relationship and a kind of partnership and creative closeness mm. that he so deserved. And I don't know if he ever experienced to that degree until they met. That said, I, I needed to kind of feel a liberty to explore and discover yeah. what this period was about. And of course, it's a period that long preceded Lori's life with Lou. I think she felt that a filmmaker who had some experience and knowledge of music yeah. and had done things that were not completely dissimilar, she could trust. And maybe Lou had seen, I don't, do not even know this, had seen some of my films before he passed away. And, right. and she right. was, you know, whatever that part of the story is, I, I, yeah. I don't know fully. What a time in music, yeah. though, you know, oh, the, yeah. the art, the poetry, everything sort of blending together. Yeah. And just when rock and roll was rock and roll yeah yeah oh, completely and yeah. and what was so unique about that time and place was that again all of these questions you're asking have so much to do with implicitly the question is what is why make a film about it these are musical moments so when not not every artist or every subject is necessarily necessarily lends itself to the medium of cinema mm -hmm. but this period in new york city in the mid 60s that produced the velvet underground was so entrenched in this experimental film culture that Andy Warhol yeah. was at the yeah. the crossroads of. I just felt like it was such an invitation to get into this amazing, incredible body of work that right. is becoming less known to people and more remote as yeah. we move forward. But it's a really fascinating and radical period for visual medium that really exploded right in the midst of the music yeah it must have been so fun to dig was, into all that it was like, just crazy yeah it was and it was right when covid first hit so we were stuck i was stuck with my editor in la with all of this incredible archive material of these avant-garde films yeah what a and will this to get music lost into, and i just was like let's not ever leave <laughs> this is the way we survived it creatively, emotionally. It was it was a lucky timing in that way. Absolutely. One more touch on musical film work, Superstar. I mean, the genius of using Barbie dolls as well as actors and documentaries and artistic footage. This is portraying the last 17 years of Karen Carpenter's life as she struggled with anorexia. I just wanted to bring it up because I think it's just such an important work. And, and again, the Barbie doll thing, and you think about that did trigger anorexia, didn't it? I mean, I know yeah. we're getting into uncomfortable territory a little bit. I just thought, you know, I know that what came afterwards was challenging, but yeah. I just wanted to acknowledge it because I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was an important early film for me. And in many ways, it's set in motion a lot. of. It's so funny how it kind of collects a lot of themes that would that I would continue to explore without having that knowing so because my career was right yet to come yeah of women as females as subjects of movies as illness as a theme in films yeah. as music and pop culture as a theme in films and yeah. sort of put them all together in this early film and the pressure women go on you know yeah. to this day oh, yeah, if sure. you're in the public eye you know to look a certain way she was so young 
and she was 19 and she was in the spotlight and she wasn't accustomed to that or prepared for the superstardom that they would face, that they would receive. And, and, and she just wanted to be a drummer and be a part of the band in the back. And, and they pushed her up front and put her in little frocks and, you know, yeah. and that unique scrutiny mm. was bared down on this, this new, this woman's body that was changing every day. Mm. You certainly don't shy away from challenging projects or subject matters. And so I want to move on to sexuality. And I have to fangirl again about Carol, <laughs> because I thought it was so subtle in terms of telling the love story, which I guess it had to be because of, you know, being set in the 1950s where two women couldn't be out showing their love for each other. This film had been in development since 1997. You were approached in 2013, and then I guess that's when things started to move because it came out in 2015. So can you talk a little bit about Sure. That? Oh, yeah. It was a project that had been long gestating in the UK, and it wasn't until a, a, a dear friend, an old friend of myself and Christine Vachon's my producer, Elizabeth Carlson, it sort of came under her wings and she continued to develop it and approach Kate Blanchett to play Carol. Mm -hmm. And the actual book it's based on, the Patricia Highsmith story mm -hmm. book is called The Price of Salt. Right. And Carol was a name that they, we, we created for the for the uh, film. Why did um, you do that? Why not call it The Price of Salt? Oh, The Price of Salt is such a great name, mm -hmm. but it felt a little bit obscure. And I think the sense of this object of desire sort of looming over this story and conducting mm. the intense emotions that had to find their circuitous way out mm. it it made sense i mean i wasn't and initially as fond of the title just as a title right as the price of salt which was so evocative but i understood later and i think it made so much sense that what was interesting for me was that it made me watch love stories great love stories and on film and and realize that uh, what I saw happening was that great love stories are always on the side of the vulnerable person in the relationship mm -hmm. the one who doesn't feel secure who's reading every sig signal and sign from the other right. as an indication of how they feel in return right. and of course that can shift in, in relationships and that is what happens in Carol and so we begin with Therese being that subject and Carol is the object of desire and through the course of the film we come around and Carol is the one who comes back to Therese and mm -hmm. realizes the value of this relationship that she had to walk away from and she's the vulnerable one by the end mm -hmm. and that's why I decided to sort of play that that same scene at the beginning and end of the movie from the two different perspectives mm -hmm. because the film had, had shifted by that point. Mm. We're in 2022 and it marked the 50th anniversary of Pride and it has these stories because there's more that we're going to talk about in a sec in terms of the LGBTQ plus community like telling these beautiful love stories. Is that something that you've always wanted to do or has it come through just projects that you found that you're interested in? It was felt very, the urgency, I think, of wanting to talk about queer themes in my films was completely circumstantial with the AIDS epidemic when I was beginning my career moving from making short films to feature films mm -hmm. in New York City in the uh, end of the 80s. And 
it was a very scary time. It was mm -hmm. a very sad time losing so, so many incredible people so rapidly. To be in your 20s and to be watching that kind of death uh, surrounding you and watching a government reaction that was so incredibly slow and dismissive of it and a culture that was so panicked by it and so easy to assign blame to the mm -hmm. gay community in particular for mm -hmm. its existence meant that we had a role to play, whether it was politically, in activism, or in creative means, mm. to respond to this time. Mm. And so that's uh, what did I that did with, with poison. poison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is considered an early entry into the new queer cinema movement. And I think about that being released 21 years ago, gay marriage wasn't even legalized. Can you recall the kind of reception the the movie received well far from gay out. marriage being accepted people were allowed to just die you know no one really cared about the value of mm -hmm. these lives as they were being uh lost at such a shocking um and grisly um wet way so yeah we were it felt like a, a, a strong uh creative response was essential and and yet mm -hmm. the the films that were sort of grouped in uh, among nuclear cinema were really interestingly bold in that they weren't simply about telling people, oh, gay people are okay and they should be integrated into the uh, dominant society in ways like vis-a-vis -vis gay marriage or gays in the military, which would eventually become extremely important legislative yeah. changes. They also were talking about the political, uh, the, the, the ways in which you being an outsider in a society can reveal the problems of a society by being outside it and by being a target of mm -hmm. dissent. And it's not always just about everybody getting accepted and being uh, equal, e evenly uh, distributed. Uh, the kinds of artists I was turning to, for instance, was Jean Genet and in, in Poison, who stood firmly as a resistant, someone who resisted being assimilated and felt that what was, there was a weaponizing that could happen with homosexuality that would critique the status quo. And so I felt that that was also an important thing to remember while, while exhibiting this kind of social reaction to AIDS. Mm -hmm. And other films in that company were doing similar things. They were actually talking about homosexuality as a threat to normalcy in ways that make you rethink what the normal is and what the status quo is. And I felt very proud to be part of that pretty radical and progressive moment mm -hmm. in film that, mm -hmm. that came out of that, that public health crisis. And then you gave another perspective in Far From Heaven, and I believe that you wrote the role of Kathy specifically for Julianne Moore. A housewife discovers her husband is gay and falls in love with her African-American gardener. So, yeah, a different story, but also, you know, alert, alerting is not the right word, but um, highlighting maybe this topic of sexuality and um, its place within the world. Yeah, no, no, certainly. And, and probably since Cirque, Douglas Cirque is the subject of this really extraordinary and thorough um, retrospective this year at Locarno. That film, Far From Heaven, was my own way of interpreting the Cirquean melodrama, mm. which um, 
talks a lot about uh, the, the sort of pressure of domestic life and the limited freedoms that exist within middle class life and particularly in American life. Mm-hmm. And I went back to the 50s. We, George Bush had just become president of the United States and it felt actually like re- newly relevant <laughs> to maybe be looking at a time that we dismiss as something we've moved on from. Right. And I'm not so sure that that's true. And even today, we might even feel that more so um, in certain ways. But I, I uh, Fassbinder was already somebody, the German director, who had interpreted uh, a Cirque film called All That Heaven Allows in a film called Ali Furiates the Soul and brought the the theme of race into it. And I, following Fassbender, brought race and then sexuality into the mix of this complicated little knot where everybody sort of hurts unintentionally hurts the other person just by taking a tiny step toward their desires. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so interesting about the Circean melodrama is that kind of tangle um, that I tried to find for my own film. And what is it about Julianne that you were like when you were writing the role of Kathy that you were like, she is she is my girl. Good job she said yes. <laughs> well, I hit my second feature film is is was called Safe and uh that is when I first met Julianne and when she played the role of um of Carol White who who was suffering from environmental illness in the film. And um it was a role that was almost unimaginable on the page Mm. because it was about a very passive central figure, a woman who was trying so hard to fit into her social world. And you always felt like it was a performance that she was failing in. Mm. And then she gets sick. And so her body starts to protest this world and this life. And Julianne walked into the room and auditioned for me and blew me away. And she has continued to do so, role after role, yeah. in this broad body of work of yeah. risk-taking, uh, widely varying kinds of characters and films and art, working with many, many different great directors. But I uh, finally, at a certain point, I was like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to be do my Cirque film, and there's no way that it can't be built around Julie. And so I just, I did a little drawing and marker when I was in at this house in Portland, Oregon, and I was thought I was just temporarily going to be in the city, and I ended up staying there f- ever since. <laughs> Stuck it up on the window, and it was of Julianne in this in this sort of oh, fall like a, backyard a landscape. <laughs> it was. It was, but it just started with one drawing, and I just uh, imagined her visualizing her in this part. And the f- script was weirdly easy to write. It kind of—I mean, I'd been watching these movies all my life, and uh, thinking of her. It's the only time I've ever written a script for a specific actor. Mm, that's a very good example of manifestation, <laughs> right there. It is. <laughs> When you are deciding what project to work on, maybe receiving a script, or I know it comes in different shapes and forms for you, do you consider the social impact it's going to make? Is that a factor into your decision making, how you you can send a message out there and tell a specific kind of story? What is it that draws you to something that you work on and create? Well, yeah, it it does. uh, You know, I think I'm... I do think about 
how the viewer watching the story might be um, persuaded to think about them, their own lives and their own choices mm. as a result of watching the film. Mm. And there are some stories that stir those questions up more than others. And so I tend to be drawn to be very general. Um, I tend to be drawn to stories that do so. I feel like I'm always learning still, and I'm always wanting to dive into something I maybe haven't done exactly in the past. That is a motivation as well. And, it, and also I like dealing with the past in different periods of the mm-hmm. past. I'm also drawn to periods I haven't yet explored as well. Cause I learned so much. I just, you know, you just, it's almost like time traveling. You, you right. get into that place and you learn so much about it. Right. You once said you can be a smarty pants director, but that won't matter if the movie doesn't work intellectually as well as emotionally. Are you a smarty pants director? <laughs> <laughs> I put a lot of thought into the process, but I do I do stand by that. I think film is so works at a very elemental, non uh, something beyond language. It has to kind of work at the gut, and it has to kind of work visually. And and mm-hmm. I think it's through the the fact that it's a visual medium mm-hmm. that no matter how well it's written and how great the dialogue and all that kind of stuff, if it isn't being communicated visually, like you can almost turn off the sound and understand exactly yes. what's going on. Yes. Uh, it's almost like great music. It, you, the lyrics are important and what's being said is important, but if you don't hear it in the music, yeah, it needs to really work at a visceral yeah, you know, intuitive level. I completely agree. And Juliette Benoche, she said something similar when I asked her about um, speaking in different languages. In part, she said it's not about the language. Forget the language yeah. for her. It was, it was the emotion and the expression yeah. of the character. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit about love stories, and I want to unpick that a bit more. And I've got some statistics to throw at you. Hope you don't mind <laughs> from my research team. So love stories, unlike war films, which are about conquering the object or about conquering the subject, it's always the subject who is in a state of vulnerability and peril. Um, So we've got some statistics here. In the USA in 2018, it showed that live action films are most popular among 77% of males and 71% of females, whereas romance was most popular amongst 55% of males and 77% of females, which isn't that surprising. So if we think about being in a still quite unequal male-dominated world, do you think these statistics also reflect the state of society today in terms of maybe like macho stereotypes and the stigma that comes with that with action movies and how that can fuel toxic masculinity? Men struggles with mental health in that respect. Um, I could go on, but I'd love to hear your opinion. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, look, we we are in a troublingly um, and persistently male-dominated culture, in my opinion. And all you have to do is look in the United States very recently at the at taking down of Roe versus Wade, a judicial protection that we've come to um, take as given um, for the last 50 years mm-hmm. and to go backwards to remove a basic right that is so fundamental to women's lives, economic lives, reproductive health, 
their choices about when they want to have a family, mm-hmm. such basic civil rights, mm-hmm. and to just flippantly remove that, and, and with, with a violent language in the, in the ruling from yeah. the Supreme Court. It's so troubling that it, you, and at least this recent vote that came up for an amendment out of Kansas, a very, very conservative state in America, mm-hmm. that showed a robust turnout for people wanting to protect women's reproductive rights that are in the state constitution mm-hmm. of Kansas. And it was astonishing how many people showed up. It was encouraging to see, because I think the far right is the squeaky wheel right now that yeah. gets the attention. Yeah. But there's so many people who are, I cannot sit still as we see ourselves moving back, mm-hmm. backwards. And I think that that just is indicative. And, and so for, for me, even the whole idea of the, um, the superhero movie, you mm-hmm. know, where even where people are like, let's make a woman a superhero and let's make a black character the superhero. Again, it's sort of out of a masculine discourse yeah. of power and force and violence being the way you succeed in society. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not really changing yeah. our value system by yeah. just flipping you know, who gets to be the superhero. Personally, it's not of interest to me as a filmmaker, mm. but I also see that it reflects some of the things you're you're bringing up. Right. When, when you talked earlier about potentially being able to persuade people's perceptions through your art, is the answer to make room for more female directors, producers, oh, well, scriptwriters? There's no question about that. Yeah. And, and people of colour and... Voices that have just not been given the same even standing and the same access to um, expression. Yeah. And that, I do think that's changing uh, yeah. visibly and, and, and fairly rapidly. And there's, there's no doubt that is only going to enrich our medium and broaden the points of view mm-hmm. that we have been using the market mm-hmm. to, to support, you know, a, a kind of single-mindedness about and um the market it's it we forget that the you know who leads what right. you know we follow the market but the market also responds to things that you never expect inventions and ideas and new technology and films that were surprise hits yeah. that came out of the corner or came out of the margins yeah and that's how we grow as a society so you have to be and yet of course it's a medium film that is uniquely mixed up with, you know, uh, capitalism and and trying to sell a product like mm. so many things are. So it's about desire, it's about expression, but it's also about a market. And all those things are in a complex way of reflecting each other mm. and shifting each other and moving, you know. So much you've got to factor into when you're, like, working on a, on a film, but from somebody that works in audio... I guess we have that to some degree too, but in terms of, you know, the storytelling and, and everything that comes behind it, like you so beautifully, um, you know, discussed. You have worked with the creme de la creme of actors, and you've mentioned some of them, Julianne Moore, Kate Blanchett, uh, Michelle Williams, Mark Ruffalo, Anne Hathaway and Bill Pullman. <sighs> I mean, it must be Kate so... Winslet. 
Okay, let's <laughs> just drop that one in there too. Heath it was, Ledger. Uh, oh, yeah, Heath. I know. And Christian yeah. Bale. Yeah, keep I've going, been, keep I've going. Been, I've been incredibly lucky. There's, yes. You know, I just watched a, a anniversary screening of uh, Velvet Goldmine and Ewan McGregor's performance is so astonishing oh, in it. And yeah. it was the first time I worked with Christian and Tony Collette. Is such oh, a genius, you gosh, know. Yeah, I mean, to, Jonathan Reese Myers to work with and just observe that incredible talent and the art of the craft blossom into your work must be just, I mean, goosebumps. Well, it, you know, I'm never uh, completely unsurprised by the the interest in in these kinds of artists wanting to work with me it humbles me it's and I learn from them and I see in them in the in all of these great artists similar ways in which we all go into a very dangerous place an unknown place from project to project and that in a, and you so you I'm always surprised when it's Kate Blanchett, who seems really nervous about what she's going to do with me. You know, in fact, I had to, I really had to stalk her and make her (laughs) agree to portray Bob Dylan in I'm Not There. She was terrified of that idea. I knew she could do this. And I knew there were few, if any, women who could do this. And and yet I knew it had to be a woman for this particular character and I'm not there. And so I had to like... I had to keep, I had to persist and keep convincing yeah. her. But that fear is something, of course, I feel, I feel yeah. it myself. You have to, you have, when you're going somewhere risky, when you're doing something you haven't done before. Yeah. But to see it on, on the other side of these people I admire so much yeah. and this work I know that as hum- well, mm. it's, 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 a, it's, it's a great reminder. That humility is yeah. probably why the great ones are so great. Yeah. You know, they don't let ego get in the way. Yeah. Speaking of Mark Ruffalo, Anne Hathaway and Bill Pullman, Dark Waters, wow. Um, So this is the film about the chemical manufacturing corporation DuPont after they contaminated a town with unregulated chemicals. That personally had such an impact on me when I went to see it at the movies. I went and replaced all my pans the next day. (laughs) Good, good on you. (laughs) And I bought the book. How How did that story come to your attention and it was such a big story to tell that spanned over years yeah that one came from mark i mean mark was so interestingly because it's not necessarily a a kind of uh, genre film that my work is associated with yeah look i've been watching mark's performances from the beginning and just been so astonished and we met years before and in passing i think after he did his great Jane Campion film but he thought of me for this and he approached me with this uh, this story that came out of the New York Times magazine this expose that was just astonishing I mean I I knew a little bit about uh, Teflon and Mm. um, but the extent of the corporate malfeasance and um, impunity with which they conducted knowingly yeah uh and you know studies on their own products and the effects that it had on on lab animals and on and on their own um yeah. employees it's a long 
sad story yeah. about corporate power and you that colludes with government power, you know. Yeah, you wonder how these people can sleep at night, you no, know. No, no, seriously. The Locarno Film Festival's Pad Honore has been awarded to the most outstanding personalities of cinema and you received this in 2017. So deserving. Please keep doing what you do. Oh, thank you Todd so much. Todd Haynes, thank you so much. Thank you. There's only one thing left to do. Let's roll your closing credits. What movie have you watched most in your life and why? Most in my life? Probably Citizen Kane. It's a film that just continues to teach and inspire and, and feel like a radical um, expose about how truth is constructed, about how meaning is constructed. Yeah. If you could have the Piazza Grande to yourself with your friends, what movie would you like to watch there on the big screen the most and why? It's happening right now. It's it's all of it's the Cirque masterpieces written on the wind, imitation of life and all that heaven allows. If you could create a new category of award at the Locarno Film Festival, what would it be and who would you give it to? Best pet performance. <laughs> Any that come to mind? Any? Any? <laughs> Just what happens in my own living room okay. with Oscar. Nice. Is today's art shaping society as it should? No. <laughs> what can art and cinema do to improve people's lives? I think art and cinema... What can art and cinema do to improve people's lives? I think help us continue to make, to ask questions about our choices and ask questions about assumptions about the way we live and what, what those range of options are and what they mean for people. Mm. What's the biggest challenge today for cinema and culture? Well, the biggest challenge for cinema in my mind as a, some, as a cineast who loves the big screen experience is, is our dominance of streaming and uh, how that's changing the very form of the medium in ways that, which I don't think um, moves us necessarily forward. I think it puts us into a specific pattern of the episodic serial experience and the whole idea that the whole notion that we call it content is, uh, says a lot. Mm. What are your hopes for the future of film festivals? I just hope they continue to thrive in ways like Locarno does, which is bringing together interna new international cinema mm. and awarding emerging talent and giving it the recognition it deserves while at the same time honoring the history of film and the great, beautiful, you know, medium that we all share. And final question, bringing it back to Locarno, as the Locarno Film Festival is all about freedom, do you feel free? No, I don't think anybody should ever feel free until everybody's free. I think you should recognize the privileged, limited freedoms that some of us enjoy and understand that they're often at the cost of freedoms that others don't. Mm. Such good stuff. Thank you, Todd Haynes. <laughs> good. This has been great. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support Future Spectives with your review and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. 
This series is created and produced by Brand Audio Media.